The mob is trying to cancel Clarence Thomas. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, don't be too sad for too long because your mom has died. And uh, everything is racist. This is Gene, and you're listening to Dumbasses Talking Politics. Hey, hey, it's Gene. Welcome back to Dumbasses Talking Politics. You know, there's this new social media app called Getter, and it's a conservative social media app. And I, I created an account, and I, I've posted maybe twice, and I've joined all the conservative people that I know on Getter, but I just r really have a hard time getting off of Twitter. And I was thinking to myself last night, why is it I just don't fully embrace Getter? And then I heard Elon Musk is thinking about creating his own app. And I realized to myself, you know something? I bet his app is going to be pretty good. Because he's Elon Musk, first off. Getter, I don't know who created Getter. Uh, but the second off is Elon Musk, Musk is not a conservative. You know, I just realized the reason I'm on Twitter and I just can't embrace Getter or Parler or any of those other apps, it's because I don't just want to hear conservative talk. I want to hear about George Takai, what George Takai has got to say, because he's such an idiot, and I love it. I want to hear what Rob Reiner is saying. I want to hear what the DNC says. You know, I want to hear all these things. And right now, you don't hear any of that You in Getter. You don't hear any of that on Parler. Even on, um, even on, what's that, that, thing called rumble it is become it's more of a conservative platform than it is a free speech platform and i don't want a conservative flat platform i want a free speech platform and a lot of these places are going to have problems until they decide to get off of the get off of the conservative platform and they actually create a real free speech platform. If they get off and they need to break from what Twitter does and what Facebook do and do something, create something completely different. Because this is the other thing with Twitter. This is the other thing. This is the other thing with Parler and with Getter. They're just Twitter copies. And you know something? These That's not going to work. You, def you need something different. And I think Elon Musk, of anybody, I know Trump's not going to do it, but I think Elon Musk, if anyone can do it differently, it's going to be him. All right, let's get to our news. All right, I should talk about this because it, it's, it's really much ado about nothing, but CNN and MSNBC have been whining and crying that no conservative has talked about this. Like Fox hasn't talked about it. OAN hasn't talked about it. Uh, Newsmax hasn't talked about it. Well, there's a reason they, they haven't talked about it. It's because it's nothing. So let's read. Here's, here it is from the Washington Post. Virginia Thomas, a conservative activist married to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, repeatedly pressed White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to pursue unrelenting efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election in a series of urgent text exchanges in the critical weeks after the vote. 
according to copies of the messages obtained by the Washington Post and CBS News. The messages, 29 in all, reveal an extraordinary pipeline between Virginia Thomas, who goes by Jeannie, and President Donald Trump's aide during a period when Trump and his allies were vowing to go to the Supreme Court in an effort to negate the election results. Now, first off, first off, um, she's a conservative activist. All right, I... Now, I don't know what they mean by... Cons- I didn't know she was really an activist for anything. But, okay. And her thing about... Their thing about a series of messages that pushed Meadows to over... Let's take a look at those... Mess- m- m- let's take a look at those messages. Let's take a look at a couple of them. Now, I read the story, I read the messages, and guess what? Yeah, no, it doesn't turn... So, this was from November 10th. 2019 or 2020 when Trump had it looked like Trump was actually going to lose and this this is what Thomas wrote to Meadows help this great president stand firm Mark you are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice the majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history it seems wow that's that's awful flowery for a text. Um, it, it seems like Jeannie might be a little bit of a, how shall we say, drama queen here. Meadows responded, this is a good, this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. I hate that term. Why would he say something like that? Makes Trump sound like God or Jesus. Wasn't Jesus considered the king of kings? I, I hate that term. Do not grow weary in in well-doing. Do not grow weary in well-doing. That's what he said. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. Well, at least my time in D.C. on it. Then Thomas responded, Thank you. Needed that. This plus a, conver- this plus a conversation with my best friend just now, I will try to keep holding on. America is worth it. That's it. I read the other 27 uh, other 27 text messages. By the way, all 27 text messages were handed to Congress by Meadows because they weren't anything of a big deal. The only ones he did not hand were any conversations he had with Trump. But did you hear anything in that little exchange? I'm sorry, 26 messages. You hear anything of that exchange where Jeannie is telling him, hey, go overturn the government? No, you didn't. She thinks that the, the, the election was stolen. It was stolen, but it wasn't stolen on January on November 7th. It was stolen six months prior by the, by the media. I find it really hard to stomach all this stuff. And by the way, on... All those 29 messages, including the one I just read you, there was no mention of the Supreme Court. There was no mention of Clarence Thomas. And there was no text exchange between Clarence Thomas and that we know of anybody. Clarence Thomas had absolutely nothing to do with it. Now, the Washington Post wanted to make a bigger deal out of this than it was. And you could tell because it was about a 2,500-word essay. It was about a 2,500-word essay. And they talked about all sorts of things like January 6th. I mean, I would have thought they would have sat back and, and threw, thrown in some of those 
that text that you that text exchange that you just heard came at the beginning of the essay, at the beginning of the article, and they didn't come up with another text message for about seven paragraphs after that. They started talking about other things, like January sixth and how what Trump did to start January sixth. Blah blah blah. Nothing about the text messages. Do you know why? Because the other 20-some-odd text messages were completely impotent. They didn't do anything, didn't say anything. Clarence Thomas never said anything. The text messages were her being, seemed like, honestly, seemed like she was just really upset. And she contacted Mark Meadows, who she knew at the White House. Absolutely incredible. But the lack of any connection to Clarence Thomas here with it, with her, with Jeannie Thomas's rather innocuous uh, text messages, isn't going to stop uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez from demanding that Thomas resign or be impeached. She said to Axios, "Consider this: when we push for the first impeachment of a Trump of Trump for illegally withholding aid to Ukraine, initially Dem- Dems internally resisted it." We were chastised for being unrealistic, quote, unrealistic, end quote, that the public wouldn't be able to follow the plot and that it would lead to nowhere. Jesus Christ, jeez, I'm sorry, I used the Lord's name in vain. I promised Chad I'd stop doing that. I really have been pretty good. But God, she's dumb. She's really, really dumb. Trump was, first off, Trump was cleared in that peach and sham, uh, that sham impeachment. So the impeachment went nowhere, especially after Trump publicly released the transcript of the conversation that he had with the president of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. The transcript proved nothing happened. Finally, I mean, it wasn't, I know, it was a perfect conversation. That's what Trump said. It wasn't a perfect conversation. He was kind of, plotting uh, Zelensky a little bit. But it was far from anything collusive. And then, and then finally, the plot of the whole thing wasn't all that complicated. All this plot that she's talking about, it wasn't that complicated. You said that, that he was colluding with Zelensky to find crap on Hunter Biden. They said he didn't say anything that he would or would not. He withheld the arms because he didn't want to give any more arms to Ukraine, which he had been giving arms to Ukraine. Then he changed his mind. He decided, okay, I'll give it to him. Nothing came out of Ukraine about corruption with Hunter Biden. It's actually that easy. But she continued... Quote, often what seems like the righteous yet politically foolish thing short term ends up being the wisest choice of all. I, by the way, was impeaching Trump twice the wisest thing the Democrats could have done? Does that, I mean, it's been, it's been a year, two, it's been the last two years. Does that still seem wise? Where are we? In politics, oftentimes the best decisions can also carry the greatest risk. All this is to say we shouldn't dismiss actions available, R.E. Clarence Thomas acts. Subpoenas, investigations, and impeachment should be a- should absolutely be on the table. We shouldn't 
have to think twice about that. We must go where the facts take us. A failure to act puts the imperiling of democracy squarely on our shoulders. It's our duty to defend it. So essentially what she's claiming to do with high inflation, high gas prices, uh, a stagnant economy, an open border, a war in Eastern Europe, a foreign policy disasters left and right. They're going to worry about going after an 80-year-old man who just got out of the hospital because his wife didn't like the fact that Trump lost the election. I mean, if you read the text, she never said, she said they should go over legalities. She recommended an attorney, but that's legal. They're allowed to do that. She didn't do anything. She didn't encourage January 6th. She didn't overturn the election. She didn't tell Mark Meadows to block the election. I don't know how Mark Meadows was going to do that. And she, and by the way, she texted Mark Meadows. What does Mark Meadows have to do with anything? He's an unelected official in the White House. So they're all calling for the impeachment or the resignation. And of course, the best thing Republicans and conservatives and Clarence Thomas and Jeannie Thomas, the best thing you can do, not a damn thing. Just sit there and say this is ridiculous. Now, granted, they'll be called names. Josh Hawley said, this is stupid. And they called him a, a, a misogynist. I don't know how that's misogyny, but they, they I mean, they're just going to call... The, that's their go-to weapon. That is their go-to weapon, is to call you names. They can't debate. They just call you names. Okay, let's take a look at the second story here. Okay, here we go. All right. Uh, these, this is... This is awesome. Okay, the pandemic did something else that destroyed every that destroyed something. Um, not just the economy. It enriched the pharmaceutical companies and it gave the medical community way more credibility than it deserved. Now let's not forget the CDC jacked this whole thing up. The NIH jacked this whole thing up. The World Health Organization jacked this entire thing up. Yet, in in order to repay them or to punish them for their sins, we keep giving them more money and we keep giving them more credibility. Pfizer and Moderna created vaccines that weren't actually vaccines. By the way, they keep saying, well, if you didn't have the vaccines, you would quite possibly end up in the hospital. Question for you. How do you know that? What studies prove that? For all I know, I injected that vaccine in my, my that shot into my body, and it didn't do a damn thing. I ended up catching it twice. So what exactly did these shots do? And this is where I get my dad. And then I see my dad. He gets it. He's 80 years old. <coughs> and he's got a cold for two days. I catch it. I have a cold for two days. Question for you. What was the difference? I'm 30 years younger than he is. What exactly did I gain that he didn't? So anyway, so the the problem is they just, they just keep pushing. And now they've come up with, with things that are just absolutely insane. And of course, for drugs, it's all for money. 
So according to the Washington Post, the Food and Drug Administration authorized the second booster shot of the Pfizer BioNTech and Moderna coronavirus vaccines for they're not vaccines, they're just shots for people 50 and older at least four months after their first booster. The FDA also updated its authorization of additional doses for people 12 and older who are immunocompromised, saying they are eligible for another booster shot. The fifth inoculation for people at heightened peril of the virus. Now, I do want to point out something here. At least they're saying, listen, if you're 50 and over, you should probably get it again. And if you want to, you can get it when you're 12 or no of. They're not actually forcing you to do it. They're not saying you have to or you're going to die. So there's something at least. What they don't mention is now they're actually recommending the booster for, they're actually saying that a child as young as six months old can get the shots. That's what they're trying to push through the FDA. That's insane. Continuing with the article, though, the shots are not a permanent solution to the pandemic. They're not even a temp... Stupid. Freaking Washington Post. It's not even a temporary solution. Still got it. Still ended up catching it. So... Anyway, but with still more with a still more transmissional uh, transmissible version of, of the Omicron virus variant becoming dominant in the United States. By the way, it is a more dominant variant. Omicron, I think it's BA1 is now the most dominant variant. It just surpassed Omicron. Uh, it's also less deadly than Omicron. They forget to tell you that. Uh, even a short-term immunity boost among those at risk of severe illness could provide a valuable layer of protection. So let's, here we go. This is Let's get this straight now. Uh, we had to get one shot. This was last year. Had to get one shot. Then a month later, we had to get a second shot. Major side effects with those two shots, by the way. Then after six months, we had to get a booster. Four months after we get the booster... We need to get another booster. Tony Fauci has already said, yeah, it could be four boosters. Okay, it's not a booster. It's not ending the virus. It's not stopping the virus. All these shots, by the way, are being funded by the United States government. Boy, Pfizer and Moderna and J&JR, they're making a ton of money here. You wonder why they're pushing this stuff? I truly believe this is never going to end. We're going to have to have boosters every four months for the rest of our lives. I mean, it gets to the point you have to sit back and say to yourself, okay, we're just going to have to survive it. We're just going to have to update our immune systems and catch the virus. Now, if you're severely immunocompromised, okay, but the reality is it's not going anywhere and the, the, the vaccines or the shots don't seem to be working real well. So, I mean, maybe it's time just to catch it. No, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. That's I won't say that. All I'm saying is I, I just think that, I mean, I, again, I'm pro-vaccine, but I just don't see this vaccine. And me catching it, I've got it twice. I don't see the point. These vaccines aren't working. Omicron, when I caught up, well, I caught Alpha. That was before the vaccines were available. It was pretty miserable. I won't lie. It sucked. But Omicron, it was a cold. 
There's just got to be something to say to catching natural immunity, which, by the way, which means you catch the, the virus, you beat the virus, and you get better. Or here's something wild and crazy. Lose some weight. You know, go, go out there and lose some weight. Get yourself some exercise. Do something. But this stuff, hey, this is all about money. Now, I mean, boosters for everybody. What, you're going to have to get a booster every four months? Wow. But that isn't the dumbest uh, uh, medical story in the world. The American Psychiatric Association has declared that prolonged grief can now be considered a mental disorder. Prolonged grief. According to Yahoo News, characterized by incapacitating feelings of grief, prolonged grief disorder happens when a person loses someone close to them, e.g. a friend or family member, within at least six months for a child and adolescence, or within at least 12 months for adults, according to APA. Typically, the bereaved individual experiences an intense yearning for or preoccupation with the deceased person, so much so that their reactions to the loss preoccupy them almost every day for at least a month. So if I constantly think about someone who has died a month ago, or let's say 34 days ago, I've got a mental illness. You're allowed only 12 months to be sad that somebody important to you has died? Or to constantly think of that think of that person? Okay, the article continues. The bereavement is considered to last longer than social norms. Social norms? Who made grieving a social norm? What social norm is there for the amount of time you grieve or how, how heavily you grieve? Think five stages of grief. By the way, the five stages of grief, that's a theory. They don't even... You, you, you read books about the five stages of grief. I lost a son. And I'm grieving after four years he's been gone. I think of him every day. I was not even the I'm not even the same person anymore. I still cry. Do I need medical attention? He preoccupies my thoughts constantly. It doesn't mean, obviously, if I'm doing this podcast, I'm not... 100% sitting in bed, but there's a point where it's grieving and it's depression. The problem is they're they're not they're not comparing this to depression. They're saying this is just grieving. You're grieving. It can't grieve that long because the social norms say there's the five stages of grief. The five stages of grief. Any book you read say, yeah, no, that's just kind of a thing, kind of a theory. The five stages don't necessarily work in any specific order or for any amount of time. Okay, enough about the five stages of grief. Anyway, so causing distress or problems functioning in important aspects of their lives, such as socially or occupationally. Other symptoms of prolonged grief disorder include identity disruption, i.e. feeling as if part of yourself has died. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, part. you lose a child, you lose a father or a mother, a brother or a sister, that feeling doesn't go away. I, I don't even... Okay, anyway. A marked sense of disbelief that the death, avoidance of reminders that the person is dead, intense... 
avoidance of reminders that the person is dead, intense emotional pain, intense loneliness, emotional numbness, or feeling that life is meaningless, among others, according to the APA. I, my God, it's just grief. And some of that stuff just doesn't go away. It really doesn't go away. I'm sure if I brought my friend in who's, I've got friends who've lost their parents and their parents were not young and they are still suffering. Now, they're not, what they don't say here is they, they're incapacitated. They can't function, which is, sounds like more of depression that the grief initiated, but it doesn't say anything about that. And I got some bad news. This stuff, it's been four years since my son died. And I still feel these these ways. I feel like a part of me has died. I feel I am not the same person I was five years ago. I don't think I'll ever be the same person I will be five years ago. I don't want to be the same person I was five years ago. This is just something I'm embracing. It's what I am. Well, anyway... Good news, they've got a drug for it. Uh, they have a drug called uh, naltrexone. Uh, this is normally used for drug and alcohol addiction. So there you go. You're taking a drug that's being used for people who are addicts. Um, and of course, now this, they've already got papers on this thing already. Uh, this was released last week and they already have several. When I typed in naltrexone, they had 50 papers on it. And they had they were pointing to the DSM five, which I I guess is going to be the DSM six soon because they've got so many changes going on to it. Um, so there you go. Now this is a bigger problem. This really bothers me. I have somebody I know very close to me, can't say her name, and she suffers from depression. She's very young, twenty one years old, not not a family member very young, 21 years old, suffers from depression. She goes to a psychiatrist. And what they do is, they keep giving her drugs. They keep giving her drugs. And guess what? The drugs don't work. And so what does the psychiatrist do? Not talk to her. Not try to get to the, the source of the problem. Because everybody who knows this gal knows what her problem is. And it's, it's a lifestyle problem. It's a choice problem. We all know what the problem is. But what does the psychiatrist do? Does that psychiatrist talk to her? By the way, because of COVID-19, that psychiatrist hasn't even seen her yet. It's all done over over, uh, over whatever it's called, the computer. I told this, I told this gal, I told this, the friend who told me about this, I said, I didn't tell the gal because I don't know her that well, but I told her, uh, no, she needs to go find a counselor that she can talk to and have the counselor find the root of her problem. She doesn't need drugs. She doesn't need a psychiatrist. The other thing she needs to do, get off her ass and go outside a couple of times a day. Go out and get some exercise. We are becoming a society that Huxley described in Brave New World in that we need drugs for everything to keep us calm, to keep us stable. We don't do the easy things. When I had depression, I was diagnosed for depression back in when I was like 38 years old. And the doctor told me to, I said, you know, my buddy told me, go to the doctor. He'll give you something for it. You take a drug and you'll feel better. And the doctor said, well, no, you need to do two things. One, you need to get off your ass and lose some weight because you're fat. 
He literally said he fat shaved me, that son of a bitch. He said, you're getting, you're, you're too fat, you need to get some exercise. And he said, two, when you don't feel like getting up and getting some exercise, that's exactly when you get off your ass and go get some exercise. So you'll kill two birds with one stone. You'll cure your fatness and you'll cure your depression. The doctor told me that. He didn't assign me a damn thing. He said, I'm not giving you anything. When you don't feel like doing something, get up, go outside and do it anyway. Don't sit in front of the television. Of course, at the time, I had reason to be depressed. I'd lost my job. And he said, well, you know, I was still financially okay, but he told me, yeah, well, get out there and do something. Because it's one thing to lose your job and be depressed. It's another thing to keep being depressed. We need to stop medicating ourselves for absolutely everything. And I got news to you. There'll be people who buy this crap. They'll sit there and say, oh, my gosh. I, I'm so depressed. I can't do anything. Incredible. So this is this is a this is a good one. Um, let's let's get to racism. We haven't talked about racism in oh what two days. So let's talk. Dave, there's something else that's racist. Um, here we go. So according to MSNBC, white supremacist's latest scheme to valorize violence and hypermasculinity has gone digital. You'll love this. This is great. It appears that far right has taken advantage of pandemic at-home fitness trends to expand its decade-plus radicalization of physical fitness, martial arts, MMA, and combat sports spaces. Earlier this month, researchers... By the way, that's not just... She, she points to MMA, but she brings up just physical activity. Earlier this month, researchers reported that the network of online fascist fitness chat groups on the on the encrypted platform tel Telegram are. By the way, crappy writing. You learn learn a comma. Learn how to use commas. She's just got this thrown out there. Are recruiting and radicalizing young men with neo-Nazi and white supremacist extremist ideologies. In <laughs> <laughs> initially lured with health tips and strategies for positive physical changes. New recruits are later invited to closed chat groups where far-right content is being shared. Okay, couple of things here. First off, um, these white supremacists must be really freaking smart to be able to go digital like this. And, I mean, they're actually learning to code. They're going in and writing code, making apps and fun stuff, I, and encrypting things. They can encrypt things. Uh, except... How do these researchers see any of this stuff if it's encrypted? By the way, who are these researchers? Article never mentions that. Are these researchers from, let's say, the Southern Poverty Law Center who calls Border Patrol racist? And by the way, MMA, of course they're considered racist. MMA is the most conservative sport out there. And I'd like to know what right-wing content they're talking about. Because anything to the right of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's thoughts is considered racist. So, I, 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 there's lots of holes in this entire article because it doesn't really explain any of this stuff. So, anyway. And by the way, yeah, MMA. Yeah, Joe Rogan belongs to the UFC. So, yeah, MMA is racist because Joe Rogan is racist. Okay, the story continues. Physical fitness has always been central to the far right. In Mein Kampf, this is great. In Mein Kampf, Hitler fixated on boxing and jiu-jitsu. 
believing that they could help him create an army of millions with aggressive spirit and impeccably trained bodies combined with fanatical love of the fatherland would do more for the German nation than any mediocre tactical weapons. Uh, You know, obviously this broad's never been in the military because guess what? They all do that. All militaries do that. And it's not the military, it's not the United States military or MMA. Germany didn't just come up with this. The Greeks came up with this. That's how the Olympics were created. The marathon was created by a soldier who was in the middle of the uh, Troy-Athens War, ran from Troy ran from Marathon to Athens to report a victory. It ended up, that was about 20 miles. But to sit back and say, oh, well, <laughs> Germany wanted a bunch of healthy, fit men to fight in their armies? Yes, so does everybody else. So did the Greeks, so did the Romans, so did the Persians, so did the United States, so does England. And hand-to-hand combat was important back then. You know why? Because that's how most wars were fought, were hand-to-hand combat. King Arthur and the Holy Grail, that was all done hand-to-hand. Oh, what an idiot. Anyway, the story continues. The intersection of extremism and fitness leans into shared obsession with the male body, training, masculinity, testosterone, strength, and competition. Physical fitness training, especially in combat sports, appeals to the far right for many reasons. Fighters are trained to accept significant physical pain, to be warriors, and to embrace the messaging around solidarity, heroes, heroism, and brotherhood. Really? Has this broad ever been to a gym? There are chicks all over these gyms wearing nothing but slinky, tight, little tight, tight tights. Some of these gals look like if they farted, they'd have to wash their tights. It's just men that are worried about looking better? And why do you think those women are actually in the gym? Half of them are there to, I don't know, pick up men. Do you know why? Because women like what she calls toxic masculinity. She calls it toxic masculinity. You know what it really is? It's masculinity. You see a man for the way he is in a gym. And you see a woman for the way she is in a gym. I go to the gym with my fiance. I've been hit on twice. I'm 54, kind of fat. I'm getting a lot better looking, but kind of fat. I got a white beard. I look like Santa Claus. I've been hit on twice. I haven't hit on anybody. Not with my fiance there. She cut my balls off. But to sit there and say, well, gyms are nothing but toxic masculinity trying. And by the way, when did, when did, Solidarity, heroism, and brotherhood become bad things. I mean, is this really a bad thing? Okay, and this is this is a this is a real one here. Recruits are encouraged to link individual moral virtues such as willpower, decif- decisiveness, and courage with desired collective traits such as virility and manliness. Uh, We're going to assume right off the bat that virility and manliness are bad things because she says they're bad things um, and that willpower, courage, and decisiveness are good things. Here's the thing. I don't see a problem with virility and manliness. 
a real man, a real man, a man with virility, a manly, manly man, they protect his family. A real man follows his commitments to his wife and his family. A real man wants children to care for him, which means he's virile too. By the way, this is all this stuff. You know, all these things that she said. I mean, she says that that willpower, decisiveness, and courage are good things, but she says virility and manliness are bad things. No, well, they're actually good things too. As a matter of fact, if you slap your wife, you're not a man as far as I'm concerned because that's not what men do. And by the way, all of these traits are what women are attracted to in a man. So I had to check it out because I had to see if this was a black gal. Because again, this comes to racism again. You know, work. basically I'm going to the gym in an hour and I'm a racist because I'm going to go to the gym in an hour. Um, I needed to check out to see if this was a white broad and sure enough it was. Some old, ugly, white broad. Now, this gal has got some a couple of problems. One, she's a sexist and a racist. She's a sexist because she doesn't like masculinity. She makes that very clear in the article. Masculinity is bad. Well, I disagree with you. I think masculinity... She has the high ground because she's a feminist woman. And I have no moral standing because I'm a masculine male. And I know a bunch of... Dave is a masculine male. Chad is a masculine male. All the people I've worked with were masculine male. I mean, some were questionably masculine, but they're masculine males. They're good They're good things. She also says some things that just make me question. I mean, she's also saying she likes black men better because they're less masculine? Is that what she's saying? That masculinity is white supremacy, so that means if you're a black man, you're less masculine? Do you think black people are going to buy that? Or like that? Do you think black men would appreciate that article? Yeah, those damn white men, they're so masculine, they must all be white supremacists. I'm not masculine, so I'm not a white... Uh, what? Guess what? This article didn't convince me. I'm still going to the gym, and I'm going with my fiancé, who will be wearing those really tight, 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 tight leggings that she'll have to watch, wash if she farts. Okay, uh, good talking to you. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Got some more stuff coming to you. Uh, have a great day. This is Gene, and you've listened to Dumbasses Talking Politics. <laughs>